Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. New listeners start some time ago by going to Torty Talks on a podcast near you. At the moment, Seyfard Beeblebrox is being blown up inside a building, and he's completely unaware of why he's there. Maybe that'll become clear shortly. Uh, Samina Beta is, some say, one of the most appalling places in the known universe, although it is excruciatingly rich, horrifyingly sunny, and more full of wonderful, exciting people than a pomegranate is full of pips, can hardly be insignificant that when a recent edition of Play Being a magazine headlined an article with the words, when you are tired of Samina Beta, you are tired of life, the suicide rate quadrupled overnight. Not that there are any nights on Ursa Minor Beta. It is a West Zone planet, which by an inexplicable and somewhat suspicious freak of topology consists almost entirely of subtropical coastline. By an equally suspicious freak of temporal realistics, it is nearly always Saturday afternoon, just before the beach bars close. No adequate explanation for this has been forthcoming from the dominant life forms on Ursa Minor Beta, who spend most of their time attempting to achieve spiritual enlightenment by running round swimming pools and inviting investigating officials from the Galactic Geotemporal Control Board to have a nice diurnal anomaly. There is only one city on Ursa Minor Beta, and that is called a city because the swimming pools are slightly thicker on the ground there than elsewhere. If you approach Light City by air, and there's no other way of approaching it, no roads, no port facilities, if you don't fly there, they don't want to see you in Light City, you will see why it has this name. Here the sun shines brightest of all, glittering on the swimming pools, shimmering on the white palm-lined boulevards, glistening on the healthy bronze specks moving up and down, gleaming off the villas, the hazy air pads, the beach bars and so on. Most particularly, it shines on a building, a tall, beautiful building, consisting of two thirty-story white towers, connected by a bridge halfway up their length. The building is the home of a book, and was built there on the proceeds of an extraordinary copyright lawsuit fought between the book editors and a breakfast cereal company. The book is a guidebook, a travel book. It's one of the most remarkable, certainly the most successful books ever to come out of the great publishing corporations of Ursa Minor. More popular than Life Begins at 550, better selling than The Big Bang Theory, a personal view by Eccentrica Columbits, the triple-breasted whore of Roticon 6, and more controversial than Ulon Kalufid's latest blockbusting title, Everything You Never Wanted to Know About Sex, but had been forced to find out. And in many of the more relaxed civilizations on the outer eastern rim of the galaxy, it has long supplanted the great Encyclopedia Galactica as a standard repository of all knowledge and wisdom. For, though it has many omissions and contains much that is apocryphal, or at least wildly inaccurate, it scores over the older and more pedestrian work in two important respects. First, it is slightly cheaper. And secondly, it has the words... Don't Panic, printed in large, friendly letters on its cover. It is, of course, that invaluable companion for all those that want to see the marvels of the known universe for less than 30 Altarian dollars a day. 
The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. If you stood with your back to the main entrance lobby of the guide offices, assuming you had landed by now and freshened up with a quick dip and a shower, and then walked east, you would pass along the leafy shade of Life Boulevard, be amazed by the pale golden colour of the beaches, stretching away to your left, astounded by the mind surfers floating carelessly along two feet above the waves as if it was nothing special, surprised and eventually slightly irritated by the giant palm trees that hum toneless nothings throughout the daylight hours, in other words, continuously. If you then walked to the end of Life Boulevard, you would enter the Lalamantine district of shops. Bolognut trees and pavement cafes where the U.M. Beatons come to relax after a hard afternoon's relaxation on the beach. The Lalamantine district is one of those very few areas which doesn't enjoy a perpetual Saturday afternoon. It enjoys instead the cool of a perpetual early Saturday evening. Behind it lie the nightclubs. If on this particular day, afternoon, stretch, or evening time, call it what you will, you had approached the second pavement cafe on the right, you would have seen the usual crowd of U.M. Beatons chatting, drinking, looking very relaxed, and casually glancing at each other's watches to see how expensive they were. You would also have seen a couple of rather dishevelled-looking hitchhikers from Algol, who had recently arrived on an Arcturian megafreighter, aboard which they had been roughing it for a few days. They were angry and bewildered to discover that here, within sight of the hitchhiker guide building itself, a simple glass of fruit juice cost the equivalent of over sixty Altarian dollars. Sell out, said one of them bitterly. If at that moment you had then looked at the next table but one, you would have seen Zaphod Beeblebrocks sitting and looking very startled and confused. The reason for his confusion was that five seconds earlier he had been sitting on the bridge of the starship Heart of Gold. Absolute sellout, said the voice again. Zaphod looked nervously out of the corners of his eyes at the two dishevelled hitchhikers at the next table. Where the hell was he? How did he get there? Where was his ship? His hand felt the arm of the chair on which he was sitting, and then the table in front of him. They seemed solid enough. He sat very still. How can they sit and write a guide for hitchhikers in a place like this? continued the voice. I mean, look at it. Look at it. Zaphod was looking at it. Nice place, he thought. But where? And why? He fished in his pocket for his two pairs of sunglasses. In the same pocket he felt a hard, smooth, unidentified lump of very heavy metal. He pulled it out and looked at it, blinked at it in surprise. Where had he got that? He returned it to his pocket and put on the sunglasses, annoyed to discover that the metal object had scratched one of the lenses. Nevertheless, he felt much more comfortable with them on. They were a double pair of Jujanta 200 superchromatic peril-sensitive sunglasses, which had been specially designed to help people develop a relaxed attitude to danger. At the first hint of trouble, they would turn totally black and thus prevent you from seeing anything that might alarm you. Apart from the scratch, the lenses were clear. He relaxed, but only a little bit. 
The angry hitchhiker continued to glare at his monstrously expensive fruit juice. Worst thing that ever happened to the guide moving to Ursa Minor Beta, he grumbled. They've all gone soft. You know, I've even heard it said that they've created a whole electronically synthesized universe in one of their offices so they can go and research stories during the day and still go to parties in the evening. Not that day and evening mean much in this place. Ursa Minor Beta, thought Zaphod. At least he knew where he was now. He assumed that this must be his great-grandfather's doing, but why? Much to his annoyance, a thought popped into his mind. It was very clear and very distinct, and he now had come to recognise these thoughts for what they were. His instinct was to resist them. They were the preordained promptings from the dark and locked-off parts of his mind. He sat still and ignored the thought furiously. It nagged at him. He ignored it. It nagged at him. He ignored it. It nagged at him. He gave in to it. What the hell, he thought. Go with the flow. He was too tired, confused and hungry to resist. He didn't even know what the thought meant. Hello, yes, Megadodo Publications, home of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the most totally remarkable book in the whole of the known universe. Can I help you? said the large pink-winged insect into one of the seventy phones lined up along the vast chrome expanse of the reception desk in the foyer of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy offices. It fluttered its wings and rolled its eyes. It glared at all the grubby people cluttering up the foyer, soiling the carpets and leaving dirty hand marks on the upholstery. It adored working for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It just wished there was some way of keeping all the hitchhikers away. Weren't they meant to be hanging around dirty spaceports or something? It was certain that it had read something somewhere in the book about the importance of hanging around dirty spaceports. Unfortunately, most of them seemed to come and hang around in this nice, clean, shiny foyer after hanging around in extremely dirty spaceports. And all they ever did was complain. It shivered its wings. What? it said into the phone. Yes, I passed your message to Mr. Zarniwood, but I'm afraid he's too cool to see you right now. He's on an intergalactic cruise. It waved a petulant tentacle at one of the grubby people who was angrily trying to engage its attention. The petulant tentacle directed the angry person to look at the notice on the wall to its left and not to interrupt an important phone call. Yes, said the insect. He's in his office. But he's on an intergalactic cruise. Thank you so much for calling. It slammed down the phone. Read the notice, it said to the angry man who was trying to complain about one of the more ludicrous and dangerous pieces of misinformation contained in the book. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is an indispensable companion to all those who are keen to make sense of life in an infinitely complex and confusing universe. For though it cannot hope to be useful or informative on all matters, it does at least make the reassuring claim that where it is inaccurate, it is at least definitely inaccurate. In cases of major discrepancy, it's always reality that has got it wrong. This was the gist of the notice. It said, The guide is definitive. Reality is frequently inaccurate. This has led to some interesting consequences. For instance, when the editors of the guide were sued by the families of those who had died as a result of taking the entry on the planet trial, literally, 
It had said, ravenous bug bladder beasts often make a very good meal for visiting tourists, instead of ravenous bug bladder beasts often make a very good meal of visiting tourists. They claimed that the first version of the sentence was more aesthetically pleasing, summoned a qualified poet to testify under oath that beauty was truth, truth beauty, and hoped thereby to prove that the guilty party itself was life for failing to be either beautiful or true. The judges concurred, and in a moving speech held that life itself was in contempt of court, and dutifully confiscated it from all those there present, before going off to enjoy a pleasant evening's ultra-golf. Zephard Beeblebrox entered the foyer. He strode up to the insect receptionist. "'Okay,' he said. "'Where's Zarniwoop? Get me Zarniwoop!' "'Excuse me, sir,' said the insect icily. It did not care to be addressed in this manner. "'Zarniwoop! Get him! Right now!' "'Well, sir,' snapped the fragile little creature, "'if you could be a little cool about it.' "'Look,' said Zayford, "'I'm up to here with cool, okay? "'I'm so amazingly cool you can keep a side of meat inside me for a month. "'I'm so hip I have difficulty seeing over my pelvis. "'Now will you move before you blow it?' "'Well, if you'd let me explain, sir,' said the insect, tapping the most petulant of all its tentacles at its disposal, "'I'm afraid that isn't possible right now, as Mr. Zarniwoop is on an intergalactic cruise.' "'How?' thought Zaphod. "'When's he going to be back?' he said. "'Back, sir? He's in his office.' Zaphod paused while he tried to sort this particular thought out in his mind. He didn't succeed. "'There's cats on an intergalactic cruise.' In his office. He leaned forward and gripped the tapping tentacle. Listen, three eyes, he said. Don't you try to outweird me. I get stranger things than you free with my breakfast cereal. Well, just who do you think you are, honey? Flounced the insect, quivering its wings in rage. Safe old Beeblebrox or something? Count the heads, said Zaphod in a low rasp. The insect blinked at him. It blinked at him again. You are Zaphod, people rocks, it squeaked. Yeah, said Zaphod, but don't shout it out or they'll all want one. The Zaphod, people rocks? No, just a Zaphod, people rocks. Didn't you hear I came in six packs? The insect rattled its tentacles together in agitation. But, sir, it squealed. I just heard on the sub radio report. It said that you were dead. Yeah, that's right, said Zaphod. I just haven't stopped moving yet. Now, where do I find Zarniwoop? Well, sir, his office is on the 15th floor, but but he's on an intergalactic cruise. Yeah, yeah, I know. How do I get to him? The newly installed Sirius Cybernetics Corporation Vertical People Transporters are in the far corner, sir, but, sir... Zaphod was turning to go. He turned back. Yeah, he said. Can I ask you why you want to see Mr. Zarniwoop? Yeah, said Zaphod, who was unclear on this point himself. I told myself I had to. Come again, sir? Zaphod leaned forward conspiratorially. I just materialised out of thin air in one of your cafes, he said. As a result of an argument with the ghost of my great-grandfather, no sooner had I got there than my former self, the one that operated my brain, popped into my head and said, Go see Zarniwoop. I've never heard of the cat, that's all I know, and the fact that I've got to find the man who rules the universe. He winked. Mr. Beeblebrock, sir, said the insects in awed wonder, you're so weird, you should be in the movies.
Yes, said Zaphod, patting the thing with a glittering pink wing, and you, baby, should be in real life. The insect paused for a moment to recover from its agitation and then reached out a tentacle to answer a ringing phone. A metal hand restrained it. Excuse me, said the owner of the metal hand in a voice that would have made an insect of more sentimental disposition collapse in tears. This was not such an insect, and it couldn't stand robots. Yes, sir, it snapped. Can I help you? I doubt it, said Marvin. Well, in that case, it would just excuse me. Six of the phones were now ringing. A million things awaited the insect's attention. No one can help me, intoned Marvin. Yes, sir. Well, not that anyone tried, of course. The restraining metal hand fell limply by Marvin's side. His head hung forward very slightly. Is that so? said the insect tartly. Hardly worth anyone's while to help a menial robot, is it? I'm sorry, sir, if I mean, where's the percentage of being kind or helpful to a robot if it doesn't have any gratitude circuits? And you don't have any, said the insect, who didn't seem to be able to drag itself out of this conversation. I've never had occasion to find out, Marvin informed it. Listen, you miserable heap of maladjusted metal. Aren't you going to ask me what I want? The insect paused. Its long, thin tongue darted out and licked its eyes and darted back in again. Is it worth it? Is anything, said Marvin immediately. What do you want? I'm looking for someone. Who? hissed the insect. Zephyr de Beeblebrogs, said Marvin. He's over there. The insect shook with rage. It could hardly speak. Then why did you ask me? It screamed. I just wanted something to talk to, said Marvin. What? Pathetic, isn't it? With a grinding of gears, Marvin turned and trundled off. He caught up with Zaphod approaching the elevators. Zaphod spun round in astonishment. Hey, Marvin, he said. Marvin, how did you get here? Marvin was forced to say something which came very hard to him. I don't know, he said. But... One moment I was sitting in your ship feeling very depressed, and the next moment I was standing here feeling utterly miserable. An improbability field, I expect. Yeah, said Zaphod. I expect my great-grandfather sent you along to keep me company. Thanks a bundle, Grandad, he added to himself under his breath. So, how are you? he said aloud. Oh, fine, said Marvin. If you happen to like being me, which personally I don't. Yeah, yeah, said Zaphod as the elevator doors opened. Hello, said the elevator sweetly. I am one of your elevators for this trip to the floor of your choice. I've been designed by the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation to take you, the visitor to the Hitchhiker's Guide of the Galaxy, into these, their offices. If you enjoy your ride, which will be swift and pleasurable, then you may care to experience some of the other elevators which have recently been installed in the offices of the Galactic Tax Department, Bully Boo Baby Foods, and the Syrian State Mental Hospital, where many Serious Cybernetics Corporation executives will be delighted to welcome your visits, sympathy, and happy tales of the outside world. Yeah, said Zaphod, stepping into it. What else do you do besides talk? I go up, said the elevator. Or down. Good, said Zaphod. We're going up. Or down, the elevator reminded him. Yeah, okay. Up, please. There was a moment of silence. Down's very nice, suggested the elevator, hopefully. Oh, yeah? Super! 
good, said Zaphod. Now, will you take us up? May I ask you, inquired the elevator in its sweetest, most reasonable voice, if you considered all the possibilities that Dan might offer you? Zaphod knocked one of his heads against the inside wall. He didn't need this, he thought to himself. This, of all things, he had no need of. He hadn't asked to be here. If he was asked at this moment where he would like to be, he would probably have said he would like to be lying on the beach with at least fifty beautiful women and a small team of experts working out new ways that they could be nice to him, which was his usual reply. To this he would probably have added something passionate on the subject of food. One thing he didn't want to be doing was chasing after the man who ruled the universe, who was only doing his job, which he might as well keep at, because if it wasn't him, it would be somebody else. Uh, most of all, he didn't want to be standing in an office block arguing with an elevator. Like what other possibilities? he asked wearily. Well, voice trickled on like honey on biscuits. There is the basement, the microfiles, the heating system. Uh, it paused. Nothing particularly exciting, it admitted, but there are alternatives. Holy Zarquan, muttered Zaphod. Did I ask for an existentialist elevator? He beat his fists against the wall. What's the matter with the thing he's bad? It doesn't want to go up, said Marvin simply. I think it's afraid. Afraid? cried Zaphod. Of what? Heights? An elevator that's afraid of heights? No, said the elevator miserably, of the future. The future, exclaimed Zaphod. What does the wretched thing want? Pension scheme? At that moment a commotion broke out in the reception hall behind them. From the walls round them came the sound of suddenly active machinery. We can all see into the future, whispered the elevator in what sounded like terror. It's part of our programming. Zaphod looked out of the elevator. An agitated crowd had gathered round the elevator area, pointing and shouting. Every elevator in the building was coming down very fast. He ducked back in. Marvin, he said, just get this elevator to go up, will you? We've got to get to Zarniwoop. Why? asked Marvin dolefully. I don't know, said Zaphod, but when I find him, he'd better have a very good reason for me wanting to see him. Modern elevators are strange and complex entities. The ancient electric winch and maximum capacity eight persons jobs bear as much relation to a serious cybernetics corporation happy vertical people transporter as a packet of mixed nuts does to the entire west wing of the Syrian state mental hospital. This is because they operate on the curious principle of defocused temporal perception. In other words, they have the capacity to see dimly into the immediate future, which enables the elevator to be on the right floor to pick you up even before you knew you wanted it, thus eliminating all the tedious chatting, relaxing and making friends that people were previously forced to do whilst waiting for the elevators. Not unnaturally, many elevators imbued with intelligence and precognition became terribly frustrated with the mindless business of going up and down. The up and down experimented briefly with the notion of going sideways as a sort of existential protest, demanded participation in the decision-making process, and finally took to squatting in basements, sulking. An impoverished hitchhiker visiting any planets in the Sirius star system these days can easily pick up money working as a counsellor for neurotic elevators. 
At the fifteenth floor, the elevator doors opened quickly. Fifteenth, said the elevator, and remember, I'm only doing this because I like your robot. Zaphod and Marvin bundled out of the elevator, which instantly snapped its doors shut and dropped as fast as its mechanism would take it. Zaphod looked round warily. The corridor was deserted and silent and gave no clue as to where Zaniwoop might be found. All the doors that led off the corridor were closed and unmarked. They were standing close to the bridge which led across from one tower of the building to the other. Through a large window, the brilliant sun of Ursa Minor Beta threw blocks of light in which danced small specks of dust. A shadow flitted past momentarily. Left in the lurch by a lift, muttered Zaphod, who was feeling at his least a jaunty. They both stood and looked in both directions. You know something, said Zaphod to Marvin. More than you can possibly imagine. I'm dead certain this building shouldn't be shaking, Zaphod said. It was just a light tremor through the soles of his feet. And another one. In the sunbeams, the flecks of dust danced more vigorously. Another shadow flitted past. Zaphod looked at the floor. Either, he said, not very confidently, they've gone into some vibro system for turning up their muscles while you work, or... He walked across to the window and suddenly stumbled, because at that moment his Jujanta 200 superchromic peril-sensitive sunglasses had turned utterly black. A large shadow flitted past the window with a sharp buzz. Zaphod ripped off his sunglasses, and as he did so, the building shook with a thunderous roar. He leapt to the window. Or, oh, he said, this building's being bombed. Another roar cracked through the building. Who in the galaxy would want to bomb a publishing company? asked Zaphod, but never heard Marvin's reply, because at that moment the building shook with another bomb attack. He tried to stagger back to the elevator, a pointless manoeuvre, he realised, but the only one he could think of. Suddenly, at the end of the corridor, leading at right angles from this one, he caught sight of a figure as it lunged into view. A man. The man saw him. Beeblebrox, over here, he shouted. Zaphod eyed him with distrust as another bomb blast rocked the building. No, called Zaphod. Beeblebrox, over here. Who are you? Over here? A friend, shouted the man back and ran towards Zaphod. Oh, yes, said Zaphod. Anyone's friend in particular or just generally feeling well disposed to people? The man raced along the corridor, the floor buckling beneath his feet like an excited blanket. He was short, stocky and weather-beaten, and his clothes looked as if they had been twice around the galaxy and back with him in them. Do you know, Zaphod shouted in his ear when he arrived, your building's being bombed? The man indicated his awareness. It suddenly stopped being light. Glancing around at the window to see why Zaphod gaped as a huge slug-like gunmetal green spacecraft crept through the air past the building, two more followed it. The government you deserted is out to get you, Zaphod, hissed the man. They've sent a squadron of frog star fighters. Frog star fighters, muttered Zaphod. Suck one. You get the picture. What are frog star fighters? Zaphod was sure he'd heard someone talk about them when he was president, but he never paid much attention to official matters. The man was pulling him back through a door. He went with him. With a searing whine, a small black spider-like object shot through the air and disappeared down the corridor. What was that? hissed Zaphod. 
Frogstar Scout Robot Class A, out looking for you, said the man. Hey, yeah, get down! From the opposite direction came a larger black spider-like object. It zapped past him. And that was a Frogstar Scout Robot Class B, out looking for you. And that, said Zaphond, as the third one seared for the air, a frog-style stout robot class C out looking for you. Hey, chuckled Zaphond to himself. Pretty stupid robots, eh? From over the bridge came a massive rumbling hum. A gigantic black shape was moving over it from the opposite tower, the size and shape of a tank. Holy photon! What's that? A tank, said the man. Frogstar Scout Robot Class D, come to get you. Should we leave? I think we should. Marvin, cried Zaphod. What do you want? Marvin rose from a pile of rubble further down the corridor and looked at him. You see that robot coming towards us? Marvin looked at the gigantic black shape edging forwards towards them over the bridge. He looked down at his own small metal body. He looked back up at the tank. I suppose you want me to stop it, he said. Yeah. Whilst you save your skins? Yes, said Zaphod. Get in there. Just so long, said Marvin, as I know where I stand. The man tugged at Zaphod's arm, and Zaphod followed him off down the corridor. A point occurred to him about this. Where are we going, he said. Sani Whoop's office. Is this any time to keep an appointment? Come on. And there we must leave the sadly no longer president of the galaxy until the next episode of The Restaurant at the End of the Universe coming to you from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy rendition by Simon Anthony of Douglas Adams' Timeless Genius. Until then, you can pick it up on Torty Talks. That was one in a series of Torty Talks by Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk. Mm-hmm.